Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, hauntings. Is it the ghosts that define a spirit-rich space or the people trying to reconcile the feeling that they're among ghosts? An author gives us his take. When you take the tour, one of the things that you're told is that she visited a psychic who told her that her family was cursed by anyone who'd ever been killed by a Winchester rifle and that the only way to keep them at bay would be to build a house that was never finished. And then, an advocate for subway reform who drank Andrew Cuomo's tears. We're assuming they were crocodile tears. Well, you know, you have to have people on the inside. I can't disclose my sources for obtaining his tears, but I will tell you that they're very bitter. Just ahead, the newly crowned Miss Subways will talk about the city's broken down transit system and how they're using their new designation to advocate for reform. But first, when we talk about hauntings, it's usually the ghosts who get top billing. But it's the humans occupying so-called haunted spaces who really leave a mark. From garlic necklaces and silver bullets to elaborate costumes and even architectural design, humans have developed all sorts of tactics for dealing with the undead. How we of the flesh react when confronted by spirits says a lot about who we are as a society. And that's the focus of a recent book by our next guest. It's called Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places. And we're happy it brings the author, Colin Dickey, to the show as we celebrate Halloween. Thanks for joining us, Colin. Thanks for having me on. So first of all, can you describe your fascination with ghosts and hauntings? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a pretty standard suburban house, looked like every other one on the block, but I grew up in San Jose, California, near the Winchester Mystery House, which mm. is often referred to as the most haunted house in the country, although what, whatever that means. But, right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's this, um, the, Sarah Winchester was the daughter-in-law of the guy who invented the Winchester rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, and after her infant daughter and then subsequently her husband died, she moved out to San Jose, bought an eight-room farmhouse, and spent the rest of her life enlarging it and left behind a 161-room Victorian mansion that um, is set up very much like a labyrinth. And this mm-hmm. is the house that I used to spend a lot of time at as a kid. And I just fell in love with this idea of, of a house that could be sort of endless and strange and uncanny and confusing. And that's, you know, from a young age, I kind of planted a seed in my mind as to, you know, why... Why do some houses seem more haunted than others? Why mm-hmm. do some houses make us feel sort of unsafe and uncomfortable in? And I think that kind of drove the the impetus to this book. Why'd she build all those rooms? So when you take the tour, one of the things that you're told is that she visited a psychic who told her that her family was cursed by anyone who'd ever been killed by a Winchester rifle and that the only way to keep them at bay would be to build a house that was never finished. And so mm. she had workers working on the house 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the entirety of her life. And she would get directions from ghosts through midnight seances as to where to build next. When I actually started doing the research and actually digging into the the historical archive, I found a lot of that story turns out to not be entirely accurate. And so that just sort of drove me on further because then my question became, you know, if this story is not true, why is it so fascinating to people? Why does it keep getting retold and what is embedded in that story? And, and, and that, you know, ended up driving the, the book is sort of trying to understand 
not only why are some buildings seen as more haunted than others, but why do some stories kind of catch with our imagination uh, in a way that others don't? Right. We talk about the fact that, you know, oh, there is a ghost in this house or something is haunting this house. There's the boogeyman, there's the monster, there's the undead, there's the memory of the person who still lives here. But what about the person who actually feels haunted and feels the haunting? Yeah, I mean, you know, for uh, another thing that really drove this book was the first time my wife and I tried to buy a house and we started looking at houses and, you know, if you've been through that process or know many has, you know, a lot of it is just going to house after house after house after house. And mm -hmm. some of them just feel very strange, you know, particularly yeah. the houses that have been sitting on the market for a long time often have been sitting on the market for a long time for a reason. And I started to sort of really pay attention to how I felt when I was in these houses and why some houses sort of made me just feel a little nervous. There were houses that my wife and I just sort of instantly knew we didn't want to be in, even though on paper it looked wow. it looked fine. And so I think, you know, in some cases, those stories that we tell about the boogeyman and ghost and all that stuff have, a, have as you say, sort of a lot to do with how we're feeling about a place and why right. why some hotels, particularly like a nice old hotel, is just sort of odd. Like maybe one time it was very luxurious, but now, you know, to stay in it, you know, you kind of can't wait to check out in the morning. And, yes. you know, you're sort of sort of afraid to maybe sort of close your eyes. And I think, you know, I was really sort of attuned to why those spaces sort of mm -hmm. created that feeling and and whether or not that feeling in some case precipitated this need for stories about ghosts or goblins or, or demons or whatever. So. so why did you decide to tell this story specifically? Like, what did you really want the reader to walk away knowing or having learned? Well, as I said, you know, in some sense it started with Sarah Winchester and the, the mm -hmm. Winchester Mystery House and my discovery that that story that I'd always grown up with was right. not historically accurate. And I, you know, as, as a historian and researcher, of course, I got really interested in, you know, what is the true story and how does the legend diverge from the true story? And then I started to think, you know, well, why this story? And, you know, with Sarah Winchester's case, it's a story about about a woman living alone, which, you know, in our somewhat sort of sexist culture, we tend to look askance on, oh, yeah. you know, women who do not remarry, who do not have kids, you know, et cetera, right. et cetera. It's a story about guns, which in our culture is uh, a flashpoint. And specifically, you know, our relationship to firearms has changed so dramatically from when Sarah Winchester's father-in-law was, was glutting the market with these machine-made mm -hmm. rifles versus now. And so, so I started to think about, you know, the way in which that story of Sarah Winchester became a way for us to maybe sort of work through some of our anxieties about, about women, about the wealthy, about firearms, about all these things. And then I right. started to look kind of more generally at, at stories throughout the, the country. And, you know, because I, I, I did find that ghost stories, there are some universals, but they're always very culturally specific. And so... So I decided to really sort of look at American hauntings as a way of understanding, are these ghost stories sort of saying something about how we Americans, however you want to define the yeah. we in that sentence, mm -hmm. you know, how they, how, what are they expressing about our anxieties or our desires or our fears right. or that kind of thing, so. You also go a little bit into the intersection of race and hauntedness. So I'd love it if you talk a little bit about that because, you know, while black Americans have historically endured the brunt of horrific acts in America specifically, it's largely white Americans who live on as ghosts in these 
these stories. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, and and so right. So um, before I get to Black Americans, maybe this it's helpful. I mean, uh, again, to think about American hauntings and and the we. One of the things. Yes. The sort of common cliche you get is the haunted Native American burial ground, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the the perfect suburban house that turns out to be haunted, and oh, there was a Indian burial ground there, and that's you know a sort of common horror trope. And right. again, I mean, there's a very sort of obvious but unacknowledged, for me anyway, sort mm-hmm. of anxiety, particularly that white Americans have about who actually owns this land that I just paid for, and and so mm-hmm. the the haunted Indian burial ground becomes a way of kind of working through that trauma without actually acknowledging any guilt or actually having to deal mm. with it. You know, so so they become this kind of double-edged strategy, I think, for sort of dealing with America's sort of traumatic past without actually having to own it in any sort of material way. And I, I think mm-hmm. that also carries through with a lot of the way these these ghost stories sort of work through issues of, of sort of blackness and whiteness and, right. and slavery. And so... I went to Richmond, Virginia in particular because I had heard, well, this place is really haunted and it's just one of the most haunted downtowns in the country. And I thought, okay, that's great. And I found I found stories of, you know, haunted brothels and haunted bars and and I and I quickly just sort of started noticing that all the stories I found were were about white ghosts, you know. And mm-hmm. I thought just a basic understanding of Richmond as the the second most busiest slave trading market in in the South thought, you know, why aren't there, why is this place that is so thoroughly haunted, why aren't we telling right. stories about the actual horror and trauma of slavery? And so, right. so again, you know, there are these ways to sort of approach the trauma of, of America's past, but sometimes kind of draw back in these crucial ways. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of push and pull is really important for understanding, I think, generally how Americans face race and how white Americans right. face race as a, we, you know, we want to talk about it, but not in a way that requires any anything from us you right. know and so so like when i would find stories about ghost stories about slavery it was often about slave owners you know it would be sort mm. of horrific you know some guy who was a horrific violent mistreater of slaves and did terrible things but he was the the ghost not his victim yeah. so there there was always that sort of weird erasure and sort of focusing on both bad and good white people but only white people and that kind of drove right. that part of that book so would you say that the ghost stories um, that we hear in America have regional flavors? You know, because one of the things when I was, as soon as I started reading certain parts of the text, one of the things that came to my mind immediately was learning about haints. Yeah. You know, and how, but haints seemed to be in specific places, and there were places where they had never, what's a haint? Like, what does that even mean? Right. I mean, yeah, it's definitely regional. And that's, again, I mean, why I, you know, I tried to find a way to organize the book that was both sort of vaguely chronological. It starts with the Salem Witch Trials mm-hmm. and it ends with, you know, technological ghosts, but also sort of regional in the sense that I was really trying to pay attention to how, you know, in the Northeast, unsurprisingly, you find a lot of ghost stories about uh, Puritan culture, about the Revolutionary War, um, whereas in Hollywood, you're going to find ghost stories about you know, about, you know, the 30s and Rudolph Valentino and Marilyn Monroe and the Black mm-hmm. Dahlia and things like that. And so there is there is definitely a regional aspect, which I see as the sort of specificity of how ghost stories do specific work for specific communities. And, right. you know, they really they and and even within those communities, as you're sort of saying, I mean, when I was saying that, you know, I kept finding white coats, it's not as though black Americans don't have a long and rich history of 
folk tales and folklore about ghosts and spirits and haints and that sort of thing. Right. Um, but that they'll happen kind of parallel to the white community's uh, ghost stories and that these two sort of different folklore traditions will happen alongside each other because they're doing different work for different communities, even mm -hmm. in the same geographic location. I mean, I looked at a couple like citywide hauntings, mm -hmm. you know, and, and in some cases you find that that's very much bound up in tourism. I think New Orleans, right. for example, sort of a classic example of a city that has really built its identity around, you know, to be a little bit reductive here, you know, New Orleans built its community around taking aspects of sort of organic black culture and then repackaging it for white people in the French Quarter, right? right. You know, and so that's, that's jazz, that is, you know, the whole second line tradition, and mm -hmm. that is also its, its ghost tradition. So it has this right. very vibrant tradition of folklore that now is sort of fed through the, the walking tours in downtown in the French Quarter in, in New Orleans. So, mm -hmm. so in some cases, it's very much about how a, a, a city will construct its tourist identity. Right. And I think the flip side of that is a place like Detroit, which I also spent a lot of time mm. in, and which is another place Speaking which... Speaking of paints. Yeah, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And is not marketing itself as a haunted place so much as dealing with the way the rest of the, the, the country has decided to write a narrative about Detroit that Detroit itself doesn't actually want or hasn't produced. Right. And so the whole history of sort of ruined porn and the sort of fetishization of Detroit as this broken down, apocalyptic, haunted place, while Detroit's actual citizens are, are trying to craft an entirely different narrative. So, yes. so I think of that, those two different ways about how a city both creates its identity and has its identity created for it, you know, through the way those ghost stories get told. Because uh, ghost stories are ultimately always about history, right? You know, yes. so so a place like Detroit, a place like New Orleans, these are places with long historical records that then get fed through ghost stories in really fascinating ways. So. I like this. This is. It makes me want to read more ghost stories and like dig a little deeper just to hear that. How can people get your book, Ghostland and American History in Haunted Places? Where do they pick it up? Um, it's pretty pretty widely available. They can mm -hmm. get it at their local independent bookstore. They can get it online. They can get it through any any retailer. It's it's out there and waiting for people to pick it up. <laughs> Are you working on anything else in the ghost in the ghost space? Um, right now, the book I'm working on is slightly different. It's more about UFOs and cryptozoology, which is like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness yep. monster, um, with a little bit of hopefully some flat Earth conspiracy theories thrown in. So it will be again about what you might call sort of fringe beliefs and sort of right. why why we're fascinated with certain things that we don't necessarily believe to be true. Well, so. come back and talk about that one too, because that cool. sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you so to. much for being here today, Colin. Thank you for having me on. This is super fun. How would New York survive without its subway system? Well, we're about to get a pretty good idea when the L train shuts down next year, and we'd certainly have far fewer butts for our jokes and a lot less inspiration for our art. Inspiration is what drew half a dozen contestants out to Littlefield in Brooklyn last month for the Miss Subways pageant. The first such pageant happened in 1941 with an advertising agency as its sponsor and ran for 36 years after that. Brooklyn City Reliquary Museum revived the pageant two years ago, opening the field to contestants of all gender identities and shifting the pageant's focus towards activism. This year's winner was Brooklynite, 
Parker McClure, who's here to tell us about how they plan to use this platform in the coming year. Thanks for coming on 112BK, Parker. Thank you for having me. It's such our pleasure to have you. We have Miss Subways up in here, so this is a real win for us. (laughs) What inspired you to compete for the crown of Miss Subways? Are you a commuter? Um, I am a commuter. I take the G and the A train every day. Mm -hmm. I have always been fascinated by the subway and public transportation in general because I just find it as a great equalizer in a lot of ways. And I also love when people in such a big city as New York are forced to be in such close quarters. And I follow the issues of the subway funding and the issues of accessibility and all these things. And I was, I have a lot to say about how I think they could improve. Mm. And I actually had been reading about the previous pageant from the 40s through the 70s mm-hmm. and had already decided that I was a Miss Subways, and then I learned about the competition. Yes. Uh, my friend sent it to me the day before the deadline to apply, and I just immediately was like, I have to do this. And I stayed up all night writing my application. And so yeah, that's what inspired me to join. I love the idea that you knew you were Miss Subways way before you got the sash and <laughs> yes. the crown. Oh yes. I love that. Fully. Speaking of the crown, which I thought might be made of some old subway track, but it turns out it isn't. <laughs> but we have it here in the studio. Yes. Now, you already are wearing this amazing, amazing <laughs> peach jumpsuit that is apparently is from some corner of Berlin. Yes. And you have what? <laughs> your earrings are MTA cards. Yes, made them myself. Made them yourself. <laughs> I love these Vedro cards. Those are wonderful. Your black nail polish is giving me everything the black <laughs> miss subway sash yes. you're already killing it and then there's this crown mm-hmm. this crown sitting here on the desk made of so many beautiful things i i mean there's a golden rat there is a teenage mutant ninja turtle skateboard mm-hmm. i just please a describe <laughs> talk to me about this crown so the the crown was made by rev jen who's an artist in brooklyn and she was one of the judges for the competition she mm-hmm. made last year's crown as well and i wasn't sure if i was going to get you know the crown gets passed on or if there's a new crown each year right. but then last year's winner lisa levy she came out with the new crown and crowned me once it was announced that i would win it's very large <laughs> but it's fun. It definitely got, I, I wore it all night. I got a lot of questions, got to tell people, you know, I was the reigning Miss Subway <laughs> starting that day. Um, but yeah, I, I love it for all the, every time I look at it, I've, you know, I've had it for over a month now, but I always find something new on it that I, I didn't realize that. was there. So tell me a little bit about the Miss Subway's program. What's it like? What happens? Okay, so the, like the modern program? The modern okay, program. The modern program. It's run by the City Reliquary, like you said, which mm-hmm. is a small New York City history museum in Williamsburg on Metropolitan, just east of Havemeyer. And it, so it's a fundraiser for them and the Writers Alliance, which is a transit advocacy nonprofit. Um, and they were just working in successfully helped get us fair fares in New York City. So it hasn't started yet, but it'll be affordable Metro cards for low-income New Yorkers, which has been something they've been pushing for for a really long time. And then they also are pushing for you know better service and those types of things. They work a lot with City Hall. Mm-hmm. First, we had to apply with an essay. I made I wrote an essay and I made a small video mm-hmm. about how I was Miss Subways. <laughs> and then all the people who qualified then had to do a talent, but it could be anything. So mm-hmm. I did a lip sync of, it was a a couple, three songs. There was a 
Charlie XCX song called Vroom Vroom about riding. Like mm-hmm. it's a, the lyrics are like let's ride, let's ride, and I, you know, pantomimes being on the subway and was lip syncing all the, the lyrics because I had just barely made the G train. Oh. And, there, <laughs> and then the train broke down, and then I used a very harsh RuPaul critique that was saying, you know, make it work, just make it happen. I don't want to hear any more excuses. <laughs> and then I did a RuPaul song that the lyrics are, you 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 know, make it work. Right. And then I went into uh, Cynthia Nixon's subway ad and was criticizing, you know, Governor Cuomo and his neglect for the MTA and what we're forced to deal with as New Yorkers. <laughs> and I, I drank a bottle of what I labeled as his tears. And yes, okay, <laughs> I heard about this specifically. Yeah. And what I want to know about that is how do you harvest those? I, uh, well, you know, you have to have people on the inside. I can't <laughs> disclose my sources for obtaining his tears, but I will tell you that they're very bitter. Yeah, very bitter. <laughs> yes. Yes, this I've heard. Yeah. So you had a good time. Yeah, I had a great time. Like. It sounds like time. the program is really fun and it does good. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the expectations of the crown. Right. You are now a representative. Yes, yes. What does that mean? How are you going to use that platform? So there's there, it, just like the talent competition where it's very open-ended and you can do it whatever you would like. Right. It's kind of you get to use the power in the way that you choose. They mm-hmm. ask that you are a transit advocate and... You know, use your own creative lens. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, you know, I've had a lot of ideas about how I want to use the crown. I think I want to continue with my drag persona of Miss Subways. Mm-hmm. I want to mm-hmm. help raise awareness around issues that I find particularly pressing about the subway. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm hoping to make some videos of me on the subway where I'm uh, doing trivia with random strap hangers and it'll range from you know fun historical facts to you know how many stations have don't have elevators which is way too many yes way too many uh i think as of i know as of last year it was 80 percent of new york city subway stations were not wheelchair accessible oh yeah which is really really bad because People who are differently abled, that's one of the only ways that they can have independence is by using public transportation. And the bus system has been neglected as well, which is one of the only ways for people to get around if they aren't able-bodied. And then the the city has been, I mean, the ADA was passed ages ago, and we haven't even made a really good faith effort to make all of the stations accessible. I agree with that. I moved here on um, to New York on crutches and found out very, very quickly yes. how many stations weren't accessible. Yeah. So, you know, luckily my eyes were open to that early, so right. I would be supportive of legislation that would help something yeah. like that. Do you have any special plans for the apocalypse? I live near the L train. I live mm-hmm. in Greenpoint. I rely on the G, but I use the L a lot on weekends. I feel like I'm getting a small taste of the L shutdown right now because it's shut down every weekend, which mm-hmm. is when I use it most frequently. I'm looking forward to riding the new ferry that mm-hmm. goes from Williamsburg to 14th Street. But as of right now, I think I'm just going to pray that adding cars to the G train is enough. Yeah. That they run enough JMZ trains over the Williamsburg Bridge. I'll, I'll stop riding with my headphones and I'll keep my ears open for any distressed riders so that I can comfort them and let right. them know that it will end eventually. There w- the L train will come back. Not as quickly as we hope, but it, unfortunately it has to happen. And this 
I just am gonna push pressure the city to you know use my new power to pressure mm-hmm. the city to do what is really necessary to deal with the displaced riders because it's a lot. That's what I'm hearing. A lot of daily riders. That sounds amazing. Thank yeah. you so much. You're welcome. And now some news. Election Day is almost here. And already, swing left volunteers have reached out to millions of voters by knocking on doors and making calls to swing districts across the country. But the biggest weekend of action is coming up. And to kick it off, Swing Left has organized a free event for volunteers at Cooper Union on Thursday at 8 p.m. It will be a night of music, comedy, and activism with founder and executive director of Equality for Her, Blair Amani, New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, and outspoken celebrities like Mark Ruffalo, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Cecily Strong, and Sarah Bareilles, not to mention the Resistance Revival Chorus, and more. RSVP to the event and volunteer at swingleft.org slash rallies. The city of New York announced they will provide language interpreters at 86 polling sites throughout Brooklyn. However, voters whose native language is Russian, Haitian Creole, Italian, Arabic, Polish, and Yiddish will have to seek interpreter services a full 101 feet away from the polling sites per the Board of Elections specifications. Interpreters can accompany voters inside the polling site upon request, but can only be accessed at this 101-foot distance. Brooklyn Assemblyman Steve Simbrowitz has called this plan an effort to disenfranchise voters who genuinely need language assistance. The hurdle is one among many national examples of voter suppression, from purged voter rolls in Ohio to exact match ID in Georgia. Six years after Hurricane Sandy killed 43 New Yorkers and caused $19 billion worth of damage to the city, the MTA has finally announced the date of the impending shutdown of the L train. Drum roll, please. April 27th. Mark your calendars, pump up your bike tires, ready those walking shoes and plan those carpools, or just find a job in Brooklyn. Recently, the state comptroller, Thomas Dinopoli, announced that the borough is growing jobs at a rate faster than the rest of the city, state, and country. Which is why they say, if you can't make it here, you can't make it anywhere. Here's a ray of light amidst some darkness. Domestic violence victims fleeing their abusers no longer have to worry about leaving their pets behind. Pal's Place, which stands for People and Animals Living Safely, will be the first Brooklyn cohabitation shelter built from the ground up, focused on human and non-human co-living needs. It will include a grooming station, an outdoor play area, and walls painted in soothing hues easy on animal eyes. A national survey of domestic violence survivors found that 48% of victims refused to enter a shelter because it would mean leaving their animals behind. And in more than 70% of cases, the abuser either threatened, harmed, or killed the victim's pet, according to the Urban Resource Institute. We hope the residents of Powell's will be able to sleep a little sounder. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, Mackenzie Fagan will be back for a chat about the podcast Everything is Alive. Hope you can join us. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford. 
and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barghi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Assis Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.